Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. At least that was the old mission statement. Now, guys, we're, we're heading into uncharted territories as I have caught up with Stephen King's publication. So last week was a big question mark as to where I was going next with the, the podcast. And so I'm proud to announce that this particular episode, I don't know what I'm doing next week, um or the weeks after, but I know that at least this episode, I am going to be getting to a collection of short stories that I've, I've wanted to tackle for a while now, but I wanted to get the uh, the Stephen King chronological order ones out of the way. I originally envisioned this as maybe a bonus episode, but I was hitting such a, a stride with uh, the Stephen King reread this past year that I didn't get a chance to, to add this in as a bonus episode. I was going to do this uh, as a bonus episode um, around... Halloween, but that that didn't uh, that didn't work out. So, without further ado, I am proud to announce that this particular episode will be dedicated to not a Stephen King work, but um, still in the same family, um, in more ways than one. And that, of course, uh, is reference to the one, the only Joe Hill, um, the the star of 1982's Creep Show, um, who happens to be a fantastic author and Stephen King's son. And what I will be doing today is reviewing his incredible collection of short stories, 20th Century Ghosts. Guys, 20th Century Ghosts is something that more people need to read and more people need to talk about. Um, having reviewed all of the the short stories of, of Stephen King, Stephen King is great at, at writing short stories, and I don't want to tear one person down to build another person up, but... Joe Hill is able to, he's able to weave such a rich tapestry in such a short amount of time, it, it, it really boggles my mind. Each of the short stories included in 20th Century Ghosts are, they're around 20 pages and they, they zip by, but they leave a lasting impact. I wouldn't describe any of these as frivolous or slight. Uh, each one of these short stories makes you stop and think and reflect. And it, within the 20 pages, you're going to laugh at times. You're going to, you know, smile at times. You're, you're, you're going to get, you know, creeped out at times. You're, you're going to be disoriented. Um, you're, you're going to get upset. You're going to, you're going to, you know, pump your fist in the air. He really is able to take you on an emotional journey. And he really showed his literary skill when this was published. I remember first reading about this in the newspaper. <clears throat> and, you know, I think that my mom, uh, you know, let me borrow the newspaper because she said, hey, you know, this is the, uh, you know, the son of, of, of Stephen King. And I, I did not pay him any attention. I said, ah, he's just the son of Stephen King. Um, and But what a shame on me for dismissing him that way. It was only years later that I, I went to the bookstore um, around, uh, in, in the fall, it was a crisp fall, I remember, and I, I picked up this in the bookstore, I said, you know what, I've been kind of floating around this for a while now, and I think that's time for me to, to check it out, give it a shot, and I'm so glad that I did, it did not take me long at all to, 
to really realize why people were, were starting to talk about Joe Hill um, because this guy is talented, very, very talented, and I love this collection of short stories. I absolutely love it. Um, so before I get any further, and I'm going to be reviewing each of the stories in this collection, uh, and some of the reviews are just going to be like me spouting off one sentence, but there's going to be others that are pretty lengthy, but I'm going to at least talk about and touch upon each of the the short stories in the collection. But first, before I get to that, I just want to read uh, a couple listener emails. Uh, the first is from JT, Tommy. Uh, my apologies for another super long email. I've just finished it and currently reading and loving Insomnia. I noticed that you skipped The Colorado Kid. Do you have plans to review it later on? Um, and uh, TJ, Tommy, uh, the answer is I don't know. Um, I don't know... Some days I think that, yes, I will read The Colorado Kid. Other days I, I, I think, um, no, I won't. So it, it just depends on whether or not I'm in the mood to to actually uh, go out and buy it uh, and read it. Um, so I, I, I wish I could tell you one way or another, but it, it's a possibility. I just don't know if it's a probability. So he continues, here are my continuing thoughts on the books. It through Insomnia plus Night Shift and different seasons, which I missed last email. Night Shift, my first uh, Stephen King short story collection. Favorites include Jerusalem's Lot, Night Surf, The Mangler, The Boogeyman, Gray Matter Trucks, Sometimes They Come Back, The Ledge, Quitters Inc., and Children of the Corn. Different seasons. Favorites are Shawshank, Redemption, and Apt Pupil. Skeleton Crew, not his best collection of short stories, but still fun. Favorites include The Mist, The Monkey, Mrs. Todd, Shortcut, and The Raft. It loved it, but after thinking on it longer, I found it bloated. Was missed by was miffed by the escapade in the sewer. Uh, King could have used something less gross to illustrate the loss of innocence. One hundred percent agree on that. The Eyes of the Dragon, great little novel. This could be a great comic. The Dark Tower Two, The Drawing of the Three, might be my favorite Dark Tower novel. Misery loved every second of the novel's uneasiness and tension. The Tommy Knockers read this one about two years ago. The meandering pace and the pages upon pages of unnecessary things threw me off. I did like it, but I felt it would have worked better if it was leaner. I agree. The Dark Half read this one recently. Struggled with this one as well. Not a favorite. Four Past Midnight. The Langoliers is my fa favorite SK work of all time. Hmm. Uh, I I think that you might be uh, the sole Stephen King reader to to claim that one. Um, TJ or, or yeah so I uh, congratulations on on that uh but anyway he continues um uh I I name drop it in my band transmission party song boredom the dark tower three the wastelands love this one the more mythology the better uh needful things what actually going back to that um I don't necessarily agree the more mythology the better I think that a lot of stories especially now um, tend to get really bogged down in mythology. But I think that with what Stephen King was able to do, this was before the big, big craze where mythology, you, you need, you know, and I'm talking more about um, ongoing series uh, and, and television. Uh, I just feel like a Bible needs to be written about the, where everything's going and the big mythology behind it all. And Stephen King didn't do that. He, he built the mythology as he went and he just gave us fragments and pieces rather than drowning us in it. Um, so I think that, that it works really well in, in how he did it in, in, the, the, in the Dark Tower books. Needful Things. One of my first reads at age of 13, I was intimidated by the size, so I used the audiobook to keep my focus. I loved this one. His best multiple character novel and one of my Stephen King favorites. Gerald's Game, not one of my favorites. 
suffers from being bloated and recycling other SK works. Dolores Claiborne read this one in two days. Loved the narrative style SK adopted for the main character. Dolores Claiborne is such a badass character. She could have been a gunslinger. Good point. Also, what are your thoughts on the Dark Tower Marvel comics? I've been keeping up with them on and off since the beginning and noticed and welcomed slight differences between the books and the comic. My theory is since it's not a strict adaptation, yet documentation of Roland's attempt to reach the tower for a second time. What do you think? Uh, thank you so much for the Stephen King cast. I enjoy it immensely and look forward to reviews of Under the Dome, Love in 2263, Joyland, The Fireman, and the Bill Hodges trilogy. So, um... You, you, you reference the fireman, everyone that, that's very appropriate, as the fireman is the, the latest novel by Joe Hill, which will be coming out uh, later this year. So I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll get to that one as well. Um, in regards to the Dark Tower Marvel comics, I think that Robin Firth, the, um, the, the, the co-writer, or she does the story, um, I know that Peter David does a lot of the, the actual scripting, she's come out and said that the the Marvel Comics Dark Tower ones takes place in a different universe, so we shouldn't treat it as an extension of what we read about in the um, in, in the books themselves. So basically what that means is don't... The way that I, I read into it is don't take them too seriously. If you, if you if your first love is the, the, the Stephen King books themselves, I wouldn't look into the, the, the Marvel Comics for any meaning... Um, any deeper meeting because those variations they 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 go into a lot more detail about the mythology and there's a lot of changes to the mythology so my thoughts are um i think they're beautiful i think the beauty uh, especially with the, the the first set of ones it got very repetitive and i hate saying that because i i think that jay lee is an incredible artist um, but after a while it just it the look of it it just kind of just became monotonous monotonous to me, whereas I think that it should have been very, very vivid. Um, but with that said, and I, I think that I touched upon a little bit of that in the With the Keyhole review, but with that said, um, everyone should be following Richard Eisenhoff on on Facebook because he, he continually posts uh, his his work from the, the Dark Tower and his uh, his work I, I, I very much appreciate his his work of, of color and inking um, and even when he was even when he was penciling it um, it's very very imaginative and I just I like what he was able to contribute so all in all I they're they're fun they're fine um, but I don't know I, I just I'm not I'm not a giant fan of them um, with that said I, I haven't really read too much of the the, the prisoner comics that, that tell Eddie's story, and I think that that's neat because the issues that I have read, it really does pull in the low men into the story, which which is really, really fun. Watching the low men really function as the low men from Hearts in Atlantis with their monster cars that uh, actually turn into monsters with tentacles and stuff. So the fact that we're getting a story about Eddie Dean as a child... And behind the scenes, just watching the machinations of of the the Crimson King and Martin um, and the mob, I, I think that it's I think that's it's really interesting to to see that. And the art style is is a lot different from what came before, so it, it makes it a little bit more distinct in that regard. So I I, I don't have the I wish I could say oh it's great I love it it's fine it, it's good and I own I own a lot of them. Um, and maybe someday I'll go back and just check them out. Probably not to review, um, because like I said, for the, the stand, um, I, had, I had bought the stand 
comic books as well. I mean, it, it's just an adaptation. It's an adaptation, and uh, you know, it does a good job. It's a it's a bit perfunctory, I believe, uh, and I think that. Like any adaptation, I think that you need to make the moments work for whatever medium that you're working in. And I think that what the comic books do, I think they cover. I think they cover what happened. Uh, so it kind of reads more like a Cliff Notes version rather than the experience that you want to feel within a different medium, if that makes any sense. All right, and then Travis writes, Hello, fellow constant reader. I just wanted to drop a line and say how impressed I am with your truly exceptional show. I discovered your program, but have plowed my way through many episodes since I can listen to my iPod at work. Just finished Thinner, and I'm now ready to listen to your eloquent discussion of it. I would love to hear your thoughts on Creepshow and Creepshow 2, though. So, Travis, uh, you're going to get that um, uh, in in a couple weeks. You know, I'll, I'll just say it. Yeah, you'll get it. Um, Next week, I'll do my review of, of, of Creepshow next week. So it's official, guys. Next week, at the end of this episode, I'll say next week, make sure you come back and stay tuned for my review of Creepshow. So there we go. I know that you guys have been wanting that for a while. I just finished watching it the other day. So while it's fresh on my mind, I'll definitely get to that. I do have a few thoughts from throughout the various episodes that I wouldn't mind bouncing off you, if you don't mind. Uh, first is King and Racism. I agree wholeheartedly on the unnecessary overuse of the N-word. I would almost surely agree that King is not a racist, but I'm sure he was surrounded by it growing up and just became part of his vocabulary, and that's in, in uh, quotations, so to speak, if you can dig that. And yeah, I, yeah I, Travis, I, I, I agree. I, I don't think that he is racist. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think that a lot of you have, have said uh, very similar um, that it he did grow up in a very overtly racist time. On Cujo, now after your review of Cujo, I felt a need to state that I adored this book. Yes, it's bleak, but to me, it was a breath of fresh air. I always link that novel with two other favorites, which are Apt Pupil and Pet Cemetery. They all share a quality that I love, downbeat endings, as well as being unrelenting. King is normally way more optimistic like you have said on numerous occasions, which I agree with. So I guess when King decides to get more nihilistic, I tend to appreciate it more, I guess. Imagine my happiness when he released Full Dark No Stars. On Bachman Books. Um, no, sorry guys, I'm not going to talk about the Bachman Books. Uh, and then he continues, I'm really loving your incorporating Joe Hill into the mix. His novels are just so fantastic. I can't tell you how many times I cried during Horns. I even cried during your review. I would love to hear your thoughts on a short story collection, especially My Father's Mask. So, Travis, you're in luck today. And that's it. This ended up being way longer than I thought. I just wanted to let you know that your hard work is so worth it, and I'm sure you have countless people eagerly anticipating your in-depth thoughts on Uncle Steve. I also look forward to hearing your dogs <laughs> cause chaos during the podcast also. I swear I hear snoring constantly also. I also reviewed the KingCast on iTunes as you requested. Thank you. Thank you so much. I look forward to listening to you for years to come, and I'm sure that this won't be the last time you hear from me, so beware. Thanks for always providing a fantastic pal of her, Constant Reader. Your number one fan, Travis. Travis, thank you for writing in. Um, and uh, uh, TJ, also, you know, thank you for writing in. Um, so... Uh, yeah, guys, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in. You know that I love sharing emails, so you can write in stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And if you haven't done so already, uh, head on over to uh, Stephen Kingcast on, on iTunes and, and leave a review because uh, that would really help get the word out about, about the podcast itself. Okay, so without any further ado, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to um, start tackling these short stories. Now, 
some of these are going to have Wikipedia summaries. Some of them are not. Um, it's just how Wikipedia is is structured. Uh, so some of when I start talking about what some of the stories, I'm going to launch right into the analysis. So the first one is best new horror. So from Wikipedia. Eddie Carroll is the editor of an annual anthology entitled America's Best New Horror. As part of his job, he has read and rejected many thousands of derivative stories and has become jaded by the process. When he reads the strangely disturbing story Button Boy by Peter Kilrew, he regains his passion for his work. The plot concerns his search for the elusive Kilrew and attempt to procure Button Boy for the anthology. Analysis. I can't think of a better way to kick off the collection than with a story entitled Best New Horror. I mean, what a great, clever wink. Because he's the new kid in town. And what you're about to get is just what the title promises. And the best part is, he's not lying. And his father, as we all know, has long since written about writers. Here, his character, Eddie Carroll, is an editor, not a writer. It allows him to lord over the Stephen King writer character. And not that Hill necessarily does this, but still, it's a fun play on the Stephen Kingisms that we've come to know. And what we get here is a story within a story. And what a story Button Boy is. If Hill had decided to just write Button Boy, it would have been incredible. But here, it's the secondary story to the main plot. But what a fantastic method of throwing down the gauntlet, saying, here you go, guys. Here's a fantastic idea for a story. It's going to creep you out, and it's not even my main narrative. Bring it. Button Boy presents the crux of the story, that conflict being between what is considered schlock and what is considered literary. No doubt Button Boy is a deeply engaging story, but, but Hill stresses that it's considered schlock because of its twist ending. If something moves a reader causes intense feeling, shouldn't it be considered just as worthy as literature with a capital L? And he writes, um, Although the ending was more John Carpenter than John Updike, Carol hadn't come across anything like it in any of the horror magazines either, not lately. It was, for 25 pages, the almost completely naturalistic story of a woman being destroyed a little at a time by the steady wear of a survivor's guilt. It concerned itself with tortured family relationships, shitty jobs, and the struggle for money. Carol had forgotten what it was like to come across the bread of everyday life in a short story. Most horror fiction didn't bother with anything except rare bleeding meat. Now, because this is of a story within a story, Hill expands on the thought of the conflict um, and the, the story within a story, and like I said, the, the conflict between um, schlock and literature, which grows like ripples in a pond. Okay, now think about this, right? The story itself is first criticized for its roots in the horror genre. And then the writers of the horror genre are criticized by Eddie's ex-wife, which we get on, on page nine. In a way, I'm almost glad you caught us, she said, talking to him on the phone in a few weeks after her flight from his life, to have it over with. The affair, he asked, wondering if she was about to tell him she had broken it off. No, Lizzie said. I mean all your horror shit, and all those people who are coming to see you, the horror people. Sweaty little grubs who get hard over corpses. That's the best part of this. Thinking maybe now Tracy can have a normal childhood. Thinking I'm finally going to get to have a life with healthy, ordinary grown-ups. Um, 
So Hill continues to present the conflicting dialogues, describing the kindness of Killaroo's brother, whose physical appearance is disturbing. A contrasting nature is nearly omnipresent in every page. Look, not only does he tell a great story, build a thematic conflict, but also teases a mystery as good as his old man does with Button Boy's writer, who Carol is soon to go in search of. Kilru is, te is teased to be wrong somehow, and this is symbolized by the warping of everyday objects, like the lamp, which is described in Lynchian dreamness, um, which we see on page 10. I dropped in on him last March. I went by his apartment just after Button Boy was published, when the outrage was running at full boil. People saying his story was misogynistic hate speech, saying there should be a published apology and such nonsense. I wanted to let him know what was happening. I guess I was hoping he'd want to fire back in some way, write a defense of the story for the student paper or something. Although he didn't. Said it would be weak. Actually, it was kind of a strange kind of visit. He's a strange kind of guy. It isn't just his stories. It's him. What do you mean? Noonan laughed. I'm not sure. What am I saying? You know when you're running a fever, you'll look at something totally normal? Like the lamp on your desk. And it'll somehow seem unnatural? Like it's melting or getting ready to waddle away? Encounters with Peter Kilru can be kind of like that. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he's so intense about such troubling things. Carol hadn't even gotten in touch with him yet, and I liked him already. What things? When I went to see him, his older brother answered the door, half-dressed. I guess he was staying with him. And this guy was... I don't want to be insensitive, but... I would say disturbingly fat. And tattooed. Disturbingly tattooed. On his stomach, there was a windmill with rotted corpses hanging from it. On his back, there was a fetus with scribbled over eyes. And a scalpel in one fist. And fangs. Carol laughed, but he wasn't sure it was funny. Noonan went on. But he was a good guy. Friendly as all get out. Let me in. Got me a can of soda. We all sat on the couch in front of the TV. And this is very amusing. While we're talking... And I was catching them up on the outcry. The older brother sat on the floor while Peter gave him a homemade piercing. And it continues, um, you know, and it continues there with that, that balance that I was talking about. You know, like that, that, that conflict, that, that push-pull between, between two expectations that, that can't really go together. It's not peanut butter and jelly. It's oil and water, and yet they're, they're occurring at the same time. So we have schlock, and we have literature. We have someone that is very, very welcoming, but at the same time, it's all off-putting because he's so disturbing. And the fact that you're having this, this friendly person be as large as he is, be as tattooed with he is, getting a piercing as they're watching, um, you know, the, 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 the whole story of the Jonestown Massacre... I, I, just on a Saturday afternoon, like it's like it's just your favorite movie in the world. It's all so weird. It is so strange, and just it's supposed to creep you out and just throw you off balance, and it completely does. And Hill has fun with building the climax, with Carol speaking in the merits of horror at a horror convention, immediately clashing with the type of horror fanatic that makes him look bad, and it's this character, the personification of everything Carol despises about the genre who was able to point out the direction of the elusive author. The fact that a man who is the distillation of the grotesque nature of this type of fiction is the one to introduce Kilru tips the reader off as to what Kilru functions as in this book. And there's a fun bit where Kilru's mailbox um, spells kill you. Carol arrives at the house 
a setting that we've seen before, guys. Um, it's the house that, if you close your eyes, you'll be able to picture it. Basically, just think of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house. And the ending itself just completely devolves into a nightmare. It is incredibly unsettling. Hill definitely, and I don't know if eases you is, is the right phrase, but I guess that's the, the, the terminology I'll use. He eases you into the nightmare with the ruined farm, the crooked hallway, the swastika, the fat brother cooking with just a jockstrap on, the mother wired to the bed. It's a dawning realization that he's in the type of horror novel that he's edited for so long. And he runs from the murderous brothers with the rising euphoria that he's finally found his calling. It's the ultimate embrace of the horror genre and his role within it. There's also the commentary that as an editor, you can't truly control horror. By the end, he's just a victim of his own horror story. It's a genre that's too extreme to be corralled. Now, one thing that's so fun about this story is that for a work called Best New Horror, you can see glimmers of other short stories found within this collection. I mean, the abduction of Button Boy in Button Boy is reminiscent of the abduction that we'll see in Black Phone. And the dream that Carol has of the flickering boy running through the empty movie theater feels like a prototype for 20th Century Ghost. The ending itself, the final paragraph, is the perfect button, pun intended, to this story. It wraps up all of the elements that he's introduced, the warring sides of Carol, and the imagery of the Button Boy story itself. So it all comes together in a head, and it's, it's just so good. So he writes, The night was clear and cloudless. The sky filled to its limitless depth with stars. Beautiful description. He paused on the side of a steep slope, crouching among rocks to catch his breath, a stitch in one side. He heard voices up the hill from him, branches breaking. He heard someone pull the ripcord of a small engine once, twice, then the noisy, unmuffled scream and roar of a chainsaw coming to life. He got up and ran on, pitching himself down the hill, flying through the branches of the firs, leaping roots and rocks without seeing them. As he went, the hill got steeper and steeper, until it was really like falling. He was going too fast, and he knew when he came to a stop, it would involve crashing into something and shattering pain. Only as he went on, picking up speed all the time, until with each leap he seemed to sail through yards of darkness, he felt a giddy surge of emotion, a sensation that might have been panic but felt strangely like exhilaration. He felt as if at any moment his feet might leave the ground and never come back down. He knew this forest, this darkness, this night. He knew his chances, not good. He knew what was after him. It had been after him all his life. He knew where he was, and a story about to unfold to an ending. He knew better than anyone how these stories went, and if anyone could find their way out of these woods, it was him. So I had mentioned this tying back to Button Boy, um, the ending of the Button Boy short story. Even even the, the, the short story within the short story comes complete with a badass ending. And what I mean by that is... He is, and I'm going to talk about this at length in um, in this in this review. His story, his endings to the stories, help make the stories as good as they are. Um, so that the ending to Best New Horror itself is a perfect ending for Best New Horror, and the story of Button Boy of uh, a young girl who gets abducted, gets mutilated, tries escaping from the the life that she's living, tries to to, to move on, and she can. She's living this horrible, horrible life, and and winds up 
after surviving the, this horrible, horrible attack through the woods when she was, uh, you know, younger, um, she gets fooled into being abducted again by the same people, and he writes in this story, In a thick forest, it's easy for a person to get lost and walk around in circles, and for the first time, Kate can see this is what happened to her. She escaped Button Boy and the giant by running into the woods, but she never made her way out. Not really. She has been stumbling around in the dark and the brush ever since, traveling in great and pointless circle back to them. She's arrived where she was always headed at last, and in this thought, rather than terrifying her, is oddly soothing. It seems to her she belongs with them, and there's a kind of relief in that, in belonging somewhere. Kate relaxes into her seat, unconsciously pulling Button Boy's coat around her against the cold. So even with that, you can see, like, A, that's an effective ending for the story within the story, and B, you can see how that mirrors the ending to uh, Carol's personal end, as he himself is fleeing through the woods and telling himself the, the same pointless thoughts that, that, that Kate has. Um, and once again, he's running through the woods. She has been stumbling through her metaphorical woods. Um, she's surrendering to the emotion. He's surrendering to the motion. Um, and the question is whether or not he's just being a fool, thinking that he can change his outcome, or does the story of Kate point us in the direction of, of where Carol's story is going to finally, uh, finally conclude. So... Oh, so good. So good, guys. Um, Easter eggs. Uh, so we have one Easter egg here, and it's towards his father. Uh, the, the movie Carrie gets mentioned. All right, up next, we have 20th Century Ghost. So here's the Wikipedia uh, summary. The Rosebud Theater is an old-style movie palace haunted by the semi-legendary spirit of a young woman. The girl died during a screening of The Wizard of Oz appears infrequently throughout the 20th century and occasionally starts conversations with a select few moviegoers. The story is told by Alex Sheldon, the theater owner, who worries about his approaching mortality and what will happen to the Rosebud after he retires. So analysis. Uh, this collection could just as easily have been called Best New Horror, but I'm glad that it's named after this story. Because this story truly encompasses Hill's voice. It's earnestly haunting. It's stylish. It's nostalgic, but not mawkish. And how about the intro? The four pages that set up this short story prove the skill of Hill's abilities. He's able to provide the scope of the story, the setting, the conflict. <laughs> what a conflict. In a nutshell, our character has to save the haunted house to protect its ghost, with the haunted house recreated as a haunted movie theater. By changing the setting, Hill is able to make it be about so much more than just a ghost, but be about cinema, the art of classic cinema, and the need to protect what made it magical in the first place before the current Hollywood machine wipes it out entirely. I mean, just look at the name of the theater. It's a not-so-subtle allusion to the most famous MacGuffin in cinema history, the mystery that kickstarts the movie that is still considered perhaps the greatest film of all time, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. If you were to ask me to describe this short story using only one word, I think I'd choose lovely. However, the story doesn't earn that adjective right away. The magic of that realization comes later, 
but begins with a true introduction to the ghost, which plays out exactly like you'd expect a ghost story to. Haunting and frightening. Ghostly. It won't always remain that way, but it's important for Hill to lay this groundwork so that he'll later be able to subvert it. So I'm going to read a, a more lengthy section here, uh, beginning on page 30 of the, the paperback edition. Doo, doo, doo. The little girls were shifting around in their seats. He heard a little girl whisper loudly, Mom, when is there going to be Mickey? For the kids, it was like being in school. But by the time the movie hit the next segment, the orchestra shifting back, back from Bach to Chayevsky, he was sitting all the way up, even leaning forward slightly, his forearms resting on his knees. The, he watched fairies flitting through the dark forest, touching flowers and spider webs with enchanted wands and spreading sheets of glittering incandescent dew. Incandescent dew. He felt a kind of baffled wonder watching them fly around, a curious feeling of yearning. He had the sudden idea that he could sit there and watch forever. I could sit in this theater forever, whispered someone beside him. It was a girl's voice. Just sit here and watch and never leave. He didn't know there was someone sitting beside him, and he jumped to hear a voice so close. He thought, no, he knew, that when he sat down, the seats on either side of him were empty. He turned his head. She was only a few years older than him, couldn't have been more than 20, and his first thought that she was very close to being a fox. His heart beat a little faster to have such a girl speaking to him. He was already thinking, don't blow it. She wasn't looking at him. She was staring up at the movie and smiling in a way that seemed to express both admiration and a child's dazed wonder. He wanted desperately to say something smooth, but his voice was trapped in his throat. She leaned towards him without glancing away from the screen, her left hand just touching the side of his arm on the armrest. I'm sorry to bother you, she whispered. When I get excited about a movie, I just want to talk. I can't help it. In the next moment, he became aware of two things, more or less simultaneously. The first was that her hand against his arm was cold. He could feel the deadly chill of it through his sweater, a cold so palpable it started him a little. The second thing he noticed was a single teardrop of blood on her upper lip under her left nostril. You have a nosebleed, he said in a voice that was too loud. He immediately wished he hadn't said it. You only had one opportunity to impress a fox like this. He shouldn't have found something for her to wipe her nose with and handed it to her, murmured something, real Sinatra, you're bleeding, here. He pushed his hands into his pockets, feeling for something she could wipe her nose with. He didn't have anything. But she didn't seem to have heard him, didn't seem the slightest bit aware that she, he had spoken. She absentmindedly brushed the back of one hand under her nose, left a dark smear of blood over her upper lip, and Alex froze with his hands in his pockets, staring at her. It was the first he knew there was something wrong about the girl sitting next to him, something slightly off about the scene playing out between them. He instinctively drew up and slightly away from her without even knowing he was doing it. She laughed at something in the movie, her voice soft, breathless. Then she leaned towards him and whispered, This is all wrong for kids. Harry Parcells loves this theater, but he plays all the wrong movies. Harry Parcells, who runs the place? There was a fresh runner of blood leaking from her left nostril and the blood on her lips, but by then Alec's attention had turned to something else. They were sitting directly under the projector beam, and there were moths and other insects whirling through the blue column of light above. A white moth had landed on her face. It was crawling up her cheek. She didn't notice, and Alec didn't mention it to her. There wasn't enough air in his chest to speak. She whispered, he thinks because it's a cartoon, they'll like it. It's funny he could be so crazy for movies and know so little about them. He won't run this place much longer. 
She glanced at him and smiled. She had blood staining her teeth. Alec couldn't get up. A second moth, ivory white, landed just inside the delicate cup of her ear. Your brother Ray would have loved this, she said. Get away, Alec whispered hoarsely. You belong here, Alec, she said. You belong here with me. He moved fast at last, shoving himself out of his seat. The first moth was crawling into her hair. He thought he heard herself, heard himself moan just faintly. He started to move away from her. She was staring at him. He backed a few feet down the aisle and bumped into some kid's legs, and the kid yelped. He glanced away from her for an instant, down at a fash boy in a striped t-shirt who was glaring back at him. Watch where you're going, meathead. Alec looked at her again, and now she was slumped very low in her seat. Her head rested on her left shoulder. Her legs hung lewdly open. There were thick strings of blood, dried and crusted, running from her nostrils, bracketing her thin-lipped mouth. Her eyes were rolled back in her head. In her lap was an overturned cart carton of popcorn. Alec thought he was going to scream. He didn't scream. He was perfectly motionless. He looked from her to the kid he had almost tripped over. The fat kid glanced casually in the direction of the dead girl, showed no reaction. He turned his gaze back to Alex. Alec, his eyes questioning, one corner of mouth turned up in a derisive sneer. Alec threw another look toward the dead girl, only now the chair where she had been was empty, the seat folded up. He started to retreat, bumping into knees, almost falling over, grabbing someone for support. Then suddenly the room erupted into cheers, applause. His heart throbbed. He cried out, looked wildly around. It was Mickey up there on the screen in droopy red robes. Mickey had arrived at last. He backed up the aisle, swathed through the padded leather doors into the lobby. He flinched at the late afternoon brightness, narrowed his eyes to squints. He felt dangerously sick. Then someone was holding his shoulder, turning him, walking him across the room, over to the staircase, up to the balcony level. Alex sat down on the bottom step, sat down hard. I mean, just the, the, the way that it, it, it decays from this beautiful moment, okay, this, this, this chance encounter between uh, a guy finding this foxy girl, right, into a pretty horrific ghost story where you have a rotting girl that's just dead there and no one can see her with moths flying around um and and hill takes us on this journey this this emotional roller coaster how very you know at first it's beautiful and then there's something wrong something wrong with that that little bit of blood on her her lip and then the blood is coming down more and it progresses she knows that her brother that his brother is dead and finally the realization that she really is dead how she just looks like a corpse and there's nothing beautiful about it um, and it just really, it just throws you for a loop. Um, and it, and then the, it's supposed to invoke, I believe, you know, your classic ghost stories, maybe from the, the, the shining, uh, that, that, that his father had written decades before that was in part inspired by Joe Hill. So it comes full circle. And of course, in our classic horror stories about haunted houses, the ghosts are always evil and the ghosts are always something to be feared. And I think that, that's what he's going with here, that he wants us to, to have those, those connotations at first in order for him to subvert them later on. And the joy of this story begins in full once this reveal of the ghost is over. With Alec meeting the, the owner at the time, Harry Parcells, all conversation around the ghosts become comedically matter-of-fact. There's no mystery there's no corpse that we have to discover that's going to allow her to move on. She's simply the ghost of Harry's favorite customer who loved movies and life and is mad because she didn't get to see the end of Wizard of Oz. You could say that she loved movies to death. 
The fact that I can say that with a smile on my face because it's simultaneously corny, clever, and deep speaks to the strengths of the writer. She loved movies to death. She's there because she simply loved movies so much in life. She wants to watch them in death. It doesn't get more 20th century than that. Or 21st century at this point. As Alec begins to learn of the ghost, Hill makes it clear that there's as much magic to be had in movies as there are, as there is, in the wonder of the afterlife. Hill continues to paint his portrait of the magic of cinema, with Alec approaching a Ron Howard stand-in, the gap-toothed director of Academy Award-winning films who started out as a child visited by um, Imogene, the ghost, in the Rosebud years before. Through Stephen, uh, we get the dream, which all friends of Imogene will have had, which summarizes the thrust that if cinephilia is a religion, then Rosebud is its temple, and Imogene herself is quite literally its holy ghost. Now, I'm going to read the final passage of this story, which is so heartfelt, so unbelievably beautiful. I get teary-eyed every time I read it. I'm going to let Joe Hill have the final say here, but as I read it, think about this as what it is. An absolute love letter to movies, to the movies themselves, to making the movies, to talking about them with your friends and your loved ones after seeing a movie together, to the shared communal experience of seeing a movie in a dark theater surrounded by strangers. Maybe it's because I worship in the church of cinema myself that makes me react the way that I do to it. Anyway, if at any point a movie has ever moved you or changed your life in any way, this next segment is for you. And again, pay attention to his ability to conclude a story. Endings are hard, guys. Um, and as you know from, from any time you've ever had to read, um, or any time that you've ever you know, watched a, a long-running television show, you, you know that there's a lot of pressure on how to end it. Um, and a lot of people judge the entirety of a series based on its ending. Or look no further than The Dark Tower. A lot of people, they, they don't like The Dark Tower simply because of the ending. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on endings. And Hill manages to just knock these endings out of the ballpark every single time. Okay? He just has this gift of wrapping it all up with a final line or two. So here is the conclusion to 20th Century Ghost. After the sale, the Rosebud is closed for two months to refurbish. New seats, state-of-the-art sound. Dozen artisans put up scaffolding and work with little paintbrushes to restore the crumbling plaster molder on the ceiling. Stephen adds personal personnel to run the day-to-day -day operations. Although it's his place now, Alec has to agree to stay on to manage things for a little while. Lois Wiesel drives up three times a week to film a documentary about the renovation, using her grad students in various capacities as electricians, sound, sound people, and grunts. Stephen wants a gala reopening to celebrate the Rosebud's past. When Alec hears what he wants to show first, a double feature of The Wizard of Oz and The Birds, his forearms prickle with goose flesh, but he makes no argument. On reopening night, the place is crowded like it hadn't been since Titanic. The local news is there to film people walking inside their best suits. Of course, Stephen is there, which is why all the excitement. Although Alec thinks he would have sold out even without Stephen, that people would have come just to see the results of the renovation. Alec and Stephen pose for autographs, the two of them standing under the marquee in their tuxedos, shaking hands. Stephen's tuxedo is an Armani bought for the occasion. 
Alec got married in his. Stephen leans into him, pressing her shoulder against his chest. What are you going to do with yourself? Before Stephen's money, Alec would have sat behind the counter handing out tickets, then gone up, self, gone up himself to start the projector. But Stephen hired someone to sell tickets and run the projector. Alec says, guess we're going to sit and watch the movie. Save me a seat, Stephen says. I might not get in until the birds, though. I have some more press to do out here. Lois Wiesel has a camera set up at the front of the theater, turned to point at the audience, and loaded with high-speed film for shooting in the dark. She films the crowd at different she films the crowd at different times, recording their reactions to the Wizard of Oz. This was to be the conclusion of her documentary, a packed house enjoying a 20th century classic in its lovingly restored old movie palace, but her movie wasn't going to end like she thought it would. In the first shots on Lois's reel, it's possible to see Alex sitting in the back left of the theater, his face turned upwards to the screen, his glasses flashing blue in the darkness. The seat to the left of him, on the aisle, is empty. The only empty seat in the house. Sometimes he can be seen eating popcorn. Other times he is just sitting there watching, his mouth open slightly, an almost worshipful look on his face. Then in one shot, he has turned sideways to face the seat to his left. He's been joined by a woman in blue. He is leaning over her. They are unmistakably kissing. No one around them pays them any mind. The Wizard of Oz is ending. We know this because we can hear Judy Garland reciting the same five words over and over in a soft, yearning voice, saying, well, you know what she's saying. There are only the five loveliest words ever said in all of film. In the shot immediately following this one, the house lights are up, and there's a crowd of people gather around Alec's body, slumped heavily, heavily in a seat. Stephen Greenberg is in the aisle, yelping hysterically for someone to bring a doctor. A child is crying. The rest of the crowd generates a low, rustling buzz of excited conversation. But never mind this shot. The footage that came just before it is much more interesting. It's only a few seconds long, this shot of Alec and his unidentified companion. A few hundred frames of film. But it's the shot that will make Lois Wiesel's reputation, not to mention a large sum of money. It will appear on television shows about unexplained phenomenon. It will be watched and rewatched at gatherings of those fascinated with the supernatural. It will be studied, written about, debunked, confirmed, and celebrated. Let's see it again. He leans over her. She turns her face up to his and closes her eyes. And she's very young. And she's giving herself to him completely. Alec has removed his glasses. He's touching her lightly at the waist. This is the way people dream of being kissed. A movie star kiss. Watching them, one almost wishes the moment would never end. And all over this, Dorothy's small, brave voice fills the darkened theater. She is saying something about home. She is saying something everyone knows. Whew. Okay, next story. Oof. Pop art. Wikipedia. I'll get the Wikipedia part out of the way very quickly. This story was originally published in 2001 in an anthology titled With Signs and Wonders by Invisible Cities Press. Um, whatever, I'll just get to the, the... Okay. The plot concerns the friendship of two socially outcast boys, the narrator who has a dysfunctional home life and his only friend, a human boy made of inflatable plastic who has loving and supportive flesh-and-blood parents. 
Christopher Golan called it one of the best stories in years. Okay, this is the ridiculous thing. Okay, all I did, I read um, two sentences and already I am holding back tears. And I think that I can't put into words, I think that I will let that reaction alone put into words how I feel about this fucking short story. And I'm sorry for swearing, guys, but pop art... Okay, okay, guys. Um, I guess of all of the stories, of all of the novels, novellas, um, of all the short stories that I've reviewed... I think, and I'm talking about it, I'm talking about the stand, like, I think this might be the one that I'm most intimidated to talk about. You know, this is the one that I have the most pressure in getting right. And more than it, more than the stand, more than the shining, more than the Dark Tower books, I feel more pressure about pop art. Because if you were to ask me what my favorite novel is, I on any given day, I might tell you that it's it's It. I might tell you it's Boy's Life by Robert McCammon. It might be A Prayer for Owen Meany. On any given day, I'll give you a different answer what my favorite novel is. But if you were to ask me what my favorite short story is, I'm not even going to hesitate. I'm going to tell you point blank it's pop art. And if you were to ask me what my favorite piece of fiction is, whether it's a novel or a short story, I'm going to tell you the same. I'm going to answer pop art. Every time. If 20th Century Ghost gets me teary-eyed, pop art turns on the water full blast and breaks the knobs off so I have no chance of turning it off. This story has no right, none, none whatsoever at being this good. And yet, so basically, yes, when someone asks me what my favorite piece of written prose is, I tell them pop art. What's that, they ask. So I tell them. It's the story of a boy and his best friend, the inflatable doll. Pop art. The title itself seems like a joke. But it's more than that. It's a trap. It's the biggest misdirect I've ever seen in a title. There's no way that you hear the synopsis and the title and don't conclude that you're about to read a comedy. That's the genius of Hill. He lures you into what is hands down the most emotional piece of fiction that I've ever encountered. One that, again, is about a boy and his best friend Art, the sentient inflatable doll. He doesn't mince words, really. He straight up tells you what it's about. And he does that in the first paragraph. My best friend when I was 12 was inflatable. His name was Arthur Roth which also made him an inflatable Hebrew, although in our now and then talks about the afterlife, I don't remember that he took an especially Jewish perspective. Talk was mostly what we did. In his condition, rough house was out of the question, and the subject of death and what might follow it came up more than once. I think Arthur knew he'd be lucky to survive high school. When I met him, he'd almost already been killed a dozen times, once for every year he'd been alive. The afterlife was always on his mind, also, a possible lack of one. So as opening hooks go, how does this not make you want to read the rest of it? On every page, no joke, on every page, Hill delivers a gut punch. And by the end of the third page, he illustrates that though it involves an inflatable doll, he's speaking about deeper themes here. 
but the better qualities of the human spirit, the ethereal kindness that we're all born with, the sublime quality that gets stomped out by a more baser aspects, which we see again very quickly on page 49. Um, you were right. That was dumb. I'm a loser, a jerk. This is what pop, this is what art writes. No question, I said. But he wasn't a loser or a jerk. My dad is a loser. The kids at the school were jerks. Art was different. He was all heart. He just wanted to be liked by someone. All I can say truthfully, he was the most completely harmless person I have ever known. Not only would he not hurt a fly, he couldn't hurt a fly. If he slapped one and lifted his hand, it would buzz off undisturbed. He was like a holy person in a Bible story, someone who can heal the ripped and infective parts of you with a laying of hands. You know how Bible stories go. That kind of person, they're never around long. Losers and jerks put nails in them and watch the air run out. Whew. Those losers and jerks, our baser qualities are first manifested by the, the torment at the hands of the students that art the personification of patience and, and perseverance. Clearly, by the nature of art being a doll, he tends to float and bob above the heads of the characters, the spirit to their mortal bodies, which are described when the narrator first becomes friends with art as having a um, damp human smell, a, a sweaty, sour reek that turns his stomach. Despite the sadness that is interwoven throughout the text, you can't deny that it isn't funny. Take the father's immediate and constantly increasing disdain for Art, who hilariously continues to attempt to make peace and be friends. Despite the odd couple comedy of this, there's a dark truth that comes with it, with the insinuation that we come to hate what we don't understand. His father, whose depictions are as awful as Art's are transcendent, is clearly the worst of what we have to offer. Hating Art because he's a doll, because he thinks he's gay, because he thinks he's judgmental. The conflict is reinforced through the, the contrast between the narrator's father and Art's mother. The narrator's father is the worst. What happens when a lack of religion makes the worst of us, symbolized by the pit bull and closed-mindedness. Art's mother, however, is something else. She's the best of us. If the father is about anger and solitude, she's about oneness and unity. So he writes, his mother bought him a digital camera. Make music with color, she said. Make melodies of light. Mrs. Roth was always hitting you with lines like that. She talked about oneness, about the natural decency of trees. And she said not enough people were thankful for the smell of cut grass. Art told me when I wasn't around, she asked questions about me. She worried I didn't have a healthy outlet for my creative self. She said I needed something to feed the inner me. She bought me a book of origami, and it wasn't even my birthday. I didn't know the inner me was hungry, I said to Art. That's because it already starved to death, Art wrote. She was alarmed to, she was alarmed to, lurk, she was alarmed to learn that I didn't have any sort of religion. My father didn't take me to church or send me to Sunday school. He said religion was a scam. Mrs. Roth was too polite to say anything about my father, but she said things about him to Art, and Art passed her comments on. She told Art that if my father neglected the care of my body like he neglected the care of my spirit, he'd be in jail and I'd be in a foster home. She also told Art that if I was put in foster care, she'd adopt me and I could stay in the guest room. I loved her. I felt my heart surge whenever she asked me if I wanted a glass of lemonade. 
I would have done anything, she asked. Sorry, guys, I could stop every other word and say something special. Whether it's the observation of how friends are supposed to take digs at each other, which highlights Art's kindness, how he never takes digs at the narrator for his father. It's the contrast between their discussions of the redness of Mars and the note that Art writes on the Robin, Robin's, blue, Robin's egg blue piece of paper. The father's pit bull is the squalid nature of humanity, with Art literally flying above it on page 61 to 62. Some of his best pictures, so what we get here, so the camera that we talked about um, earlier, Art's mother gives him a camera because the, they're musicians in that family because Art's an inflatable doll. He can't play any music, so that's hence the, the make melodies out of light. Beautiful phrase. So, um, you know, what they do is Art starts to fly in, in the air with the, uh, with the camera. So he... So this, of course, was written in a time before drones, right? So this, uh, he's a he's a proto-drone, I guess, in, in, in that regard. So some of his best pictures were low-altitude affairs, things he snapped when he was only a few yards off the ground. Once he took three balloons and swam into the air over Happy's chain-link enclosure off the side of our house, Happy spent all day in his fenced-off pen, barking frantically at women going by with strollers, the jingle of ice cream trucks, squirrels. Happy had trampled all the space in his penned-in plot of earth down to mud. Scattered about him were dozens of dried piles of dog crap. In the middle of this awful brown turdscape was Happy himself, and every photo Art snapped of him. He was leaping up on his back legs, mouth and open to show the pink cavity within, eyes fixed on Art's dangling sneakers. I feel bad. What a horrible place to live. Get your head out of your ass, I said. If creatures like Happy were allowed to run wild, they'd make the whole world look that way. He doesn't want to live somewhere else. Turds and mud. That's Happy's idea of a total garden spot. I strongly disagree, Arthur wrote me. But time has not softened my opinions on this matter. It is my belief that, as a rule, creatures of Happy's ilk, I'm thinking here of canines and men both, more often run free than lived caged. And is in fact a world of mud and feces they desire, a world with no art in it or anyone like him a place where there is no talks of books or God or the worlds beyond this world, a place where the only communication is the hysterical barking of starving and hate-filled dogs. I can't think of a more succinct summation of the theme of this story than that passage. Look, when the narrator returns home to find that Happy, the dog, has trapped Art in the station wagon, it is heartbreaking. Like, when Frosty gets trapped in the greenhouse and realizes that he's about to die kind of heartbreaking. And then he decides how he wants to go out. And he gives us his final messages, which are just beyond soul-crushing. So, 65 um, to 66. And, uh, guys, just like I did with the other one, I am going to read um, straight up until the end. Alright, so, so here we go. Oh... Do you know people have made it into outer space without rockets? Chuck Yeager flew a high-performance jet so high it started to tumble. Tumbled upward, not downwards. He ran so high, gravity lost hold of him. His jet was tumbling up out of the stratosphere. All of the color melted out of the sky. It was like the blue sky was paper, and a hole was burning out the middle of it, and behind it, everything was black. Everything was full of stars. Imagine falling up. 
I looked at his note, then back to his face. He was writing again. His second message was simpler. I've had it. Seriously, I'm all done. I deflate 15 to 16 times a day. I need someone to pump me up practically every hour. I feel sick all the time and I hate it. This is no kind of life. Oh no, I said, my vision blurred. Tears welled up and spilled over my eyes. Things will get better. No, I don't think so. It isn't about where, whether I die. It's about figuring out where, and I've decided. I'm going to see how high I can go. I want to see if it's true. If the sky opens up on top. I don't know what else I said to him. A lot of things, I guess. I asked him not to do it, not to leave me. I said that it wasn't fair. I said that I didn't have any other friends. I said that I have always been lonely. I talked until it was all blubber and strangled helpless sobs until he reached his crinkly plastic arms around me and held me while I hid my face in his chest. He took the balloons from me, got them looped around one wrist. I held his other hand and we walked to the edge of the water. The surf splashed in and filled my sneakers. The sea was so cold it made the bones in my feet throb. I lifted him and held him in both arms and squeezed until he made a mournful squeak. We hugged for a long time. Then I opened my arms. I let him go. I hope if there is another world, we will not be judged too harshly for the things we did wrong here. That we will at least be forgiven for the mistakes we made out of love. I have no doubt it was a sin of some kind to let such a one go. He rose away, and the airstream turned him around so he was looking back at me as he bobbed out over the water, his left arm pulled high over his head, the balloons attached to his wrist. His head was tipped at a thoughtful angle, so he seemed to be studying me. I sat on the beach and watched him go. I watched until I could no longer distinguish him from the gulls that were wheeling and diving over the water a few miles away. He was just one more dirty speck wandering the sky. I didn't move. I wasn't sure if I could get up. In time, the horizon turned a dusky rose and the blue sky above deepened to black. I stretched out on the beach and watched the stars spill through the darkness overhead. I watched until a dizziness overcame me, and I could imagine spilling off the ground and falling up into the night. I developed emotional problems. When school started again, I would cry at the sight of an empty desk. I couldn't answer questions or do homework. I flunked out and had to go through seventh grade again. Worse, no one believed I was dangerous anymore. It was impossible to be scared of me after you had seen me sobbing my guts out a few times. I didn't have the switchblade anymore. My father had confiscated it. Billy Spears beat me up one day after school, mashed my lips, loosened a tooth. John Erickson held me down, wrote colostomy bag on my forehead and magic marker, still trying to get it right. Cassius Delamitri ambushed me, shoved me down, and jumped on top of me, crushing me under his weight, driving all the air out of my lungs. A defeat by way of deflation. Art would have understood perfectly. I avoided the Roths. I wanted more than anything to see Art's mother, but stayed away. I was afraid to talk to her. It would come pouring out of me, that I had been there at the end, that I had stood in the surf and let Art go. I was afraid of what I might see in her eyes, of her hurt and anger. Less than six months after Art's deflated body was found slopping in the surf along North Scarswell's beach, there was a for sale sign out in front of the Roths' ranch. I never saw either of his parents again. Mrs. Roth sometimes wrote me letters, asking how I was and what I was doing, but I never replied. She signed her letters, Love. I went out for track in high school and did well at pole vault. My track coach said the law of gravity didn't apply to me. My track coach didn't know fuck all about gravity. No matter how high I went for a moment, I always came down in the end, same as anyone else. 
Pole vault got me a state college scholarship. I kept to myself. No one at college knew me. And I was at last able to rebuild my long-lost image as a sociopath. I didn't go to parties. I didn't date. I didn't want to get to know anybody. I was crossing the campus one morning, and I saw coming toward me a young girl with black hair so dark it had the cold blue sheen of rich oil. She wore a bulky sweater and a librarian's ankle-length skirt, very asexual outfit. But all the same, you could see she had a stunning figure, slim hips, high ripe breasts. Her eyes were of staring blue glass, her skin as white as Art's. It was the first time I had seen an inflatable person since Art drifted away on his balloons. Kid walking behind me, Wolf whistled at her. I stepped aside, and when he went past, I tripped him up and watched his books fly everywhere. Are you some kind of psycho? He screeched. Yes, I said, exactly. Her, nath was, her name was Ruth Goldman. She had a round rubber patch on the heel of one foot where she had stepped on a shard of broken glass as a little girl, and a large square patch on her left shoulder where a sharp branch poked her once on a windy day. Homeschooling and obsessively protective parents had saved her from further damage. We were both English majors. Her favorite writer was Kafka, because he understood the absurd. My favorite writer was Malamude, because he understood loneliness. We married the same year I graduated. Although I remained doubtful about the life eternal, I converted without any prodding from her, gave in at last to a longing to have some talk about the spirit in my life. Can you really call it a conversion? In truth, I had no beliefs to convert from. Whatever the case, ours was a Jewish wedding, glass under white cloth, crunched beneath the boot heel. One afternoon, I told her about art. That's so sad. I'm so sorry, she wrote me in wax pencil. She put her hand over mine. What happened? Did he run out of air? Ran out of sky, I said. So the question here is, what's real? Does this story play out as it's told to us? Or is our narrator an unreliable narrator? A friend of mine, after reading the story, wondered if Art wasn't a balloon and was instead a friend who had had cancer. I mean, Joe Hill specifically references a colostomy bag twice. So what's real? What's not? Or think about his first interaction with his father. He writes, As for my father, he suffered from migraines. In the afternoons, he sat in front of soaps in the darkened living room, wet-eyed and miserable. He hated to be bothered. You couldn't tell him anything. It was a mistake to even try. Blah, blah, he would say, cutting me off in mid-sentence. My head is splitting. You're killing me here with blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. So does the father actually say blah, blah? Or is this the exaggeration of the narrator who reinterpreted what the father said was blah, blah? So if that's the case, then it's showing that this might be an example of an unreliable narrator. But going back to the cancer concept... From the get-go, the pall of death hangs over the story. So first, the story begins with the introduction to Art as his best friend when he was 12. Only 12. That speaks to a limited time. By the end of the first paragraph, he says that Art has been killed almost a dozen times, that they speak about death, and the afterlife was always on his mind. So by the time we first really meet Art, he wants to play with his switchblade knife, which, with him being an inflatable doll, is as suicidal as someone with a spastic trigger finger wanting to play with a gun. I mean, the specter of death continues to haunt the narrative with, with passages like, um, 
We went out on the baseball field, sat on the pitcher's mound. Art wrote me a note that said thanks, and another said that I didn't have to do what I had done, but he was glad I had done it, and another said that he owed me one. I shoved each note into my pocket after reading it, didn't think why. That night, alone in my bedroom, I dug a wad of crushed notepaper out of my pocket, lumped the size of a lemon, peeled each note free, and pressed it flat on my bed, read them all over again. There was no good reason to not to throw them away, but I didn't. Started a collection instead. It was like some part of me knew, even then, I might want to have something to remember Art by after he was gone. I saved hundreds of his notes over the next year, some as short as a couple words, a few six pages long manifestos. I have most of them still, from the first note he handed me, to the one that begins, I don't care what they do, to the last one that ends, I want to see if it's true, if the sky opens up on top. I mean, with a line like that, and the fact that it's the last note that he ever writes, it creates such a profundity to the proceedings. And just like his dad, Stephen King, he creates a mystery. What happens to art? What's the context of this final line? Regardless of whether or not it pays off, and it most certainly pays off, the line itself is just beautiful. If you get a bad feeling, it only gets worse when they have conversations where Art says things like, you get an ast astronaut's life whether you want it or not, leave it all behind for a world you know nothing about. That's just the deal. The death starts to come after being trapped in the car, and tell me it doesn't read like a person's cancer taking a turn for the worst. And boy, how about that death? You can't get through those four final pages without crying. It's absolutely impossible. So I don't know. I mean, is this just a interpretation of cancer or is it something else i don't know but to me it doesn't get any better than this short story up next we have you will hear the locust sing it's the story of a boy who wakes up one morning to find he's become a giant human-sized insect so let's get the literary illusions out of the way I mean, this is a mashup between the, the B-movie atomic monster movies of the 50s with Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, which had just been referenced in the previous story, which will famously see a man transforming into a giant cockroach. The inspiration um, is there with our main character's first name, Francis K. It's such a weird and unsettling beginning that, that demands attention. Francis K. woke from dreams that were not uneasy but exulant and found himself an insect. He was not surprised, though had this thought this might happen. Or not thought, hoped, fantasized. And if not for this precise thing, then something like it. He believed for a while that he would learn to control cockroaches by telepathy, that he would master a glistening brown-backed horde of them and send them clattering to battle for him. Or like in that movie with Vincent Price, he would be partially transformed, his head become the head of a fly, sprouting obscene black hairs, his bulging, faceted eyes reflecting a thousand screaming faces. He still wore his former skin like a coat, the skin of who had been when he was human. Four of his six legs poked through rents in damp beige, pimpled, mole-studded, tragic, weakened cape of flesh. At the sight of his ruined, castaway skin, he felt a little thrill of ecstasy and thought good riddance to it. He was on his back, and his legs, segmented and jointly so they bent backwards, wavered helplessly above his body. His legs were armored in curved plates of brilliant metallic green, as shiny as polished chrome, and in the sun that slanted through the bedroom windows, splashes of unwholesome iridescence raced across their surfaces. His appendages ended in curved hooks of hardened black enamel, filigreed with a thousand blade-like hairs. I mean, and it, it continues going. It is just... 
such a strong beginning. I mean, we learn so much of the boy through this dream, and the fact that he's an insect says so much about him. The life of this kid is awful. He's a recipient of bullying, not unlike Carrie had been, but something about this bullying is somehow more distracting. The only attention that he gets from his peers is negative, so when he begins to exhibit the weird gross-out um, of eating insects, um, you know, it turns him into that weird kid. And you get it. The transformation has begun. Immediately, Francis becomes the locust, and from here on out, it's pure imagery placing us in this vivid world of desert atomic testing and, and, and insect teenagers. As I've said before, it's a throwback to the 1950s monster movies, but the twist is that's through the perspective of the monster. He gives into his monstrous being after he accidentally kills his father and purposefully begins to eat him. Um, and then... In the end, uh, there's an unfortunate part where there's a um, he goes to the school, and with life being what it is, you know, anytime we we get some sort of uh, sensationalism around that particular subject, it makes me uneasy. Um, but you know, um, even even without that 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 particular part of it, it's still an intense, interesting read. Up next is Abram's boys or Abraham's boys. So, um, the, uh, Wikipedia summary is very, very slight, and it says, Abraham von Helsing, living in America following the events of Dracula, tries to teach his sons about vampires. Analysis. If you weren't aware of what the story was about, it comes hammering home like a stake through the heart once the name von Helsing is mentioned. This, along with Max's deep accent, the setting sun, and the neighbor's pallid complexion and sudden illness, spell out what the story is. The sons of Van Helsing, Dracula's greatest foe. Yet, whatever image of heroism or goodness that we might have in the Slayer of Vampires is smashed against reality when he starts to manhandle and verbally abuse his eldest son. Hill demonstrates that this is a direct sequel to Dracula, with the boys being the sons of Mina herself, who died under mysterious circumstances, believed by many to have been murdered by her husband. The imagery, the setting sun, the pale neighbor is just a fake-out as the real premise of the story takes over. What if the story we knew is Dracula? What if it's just a version of events told from a serial killer to his children? Revisioning Van Helsing as a twisted madman is a fun, unexpected turn of events, and his ultimate death um, is the tip to this stake. Next story is Better Than Home. A story about a troubled boy whose father manages a baseball team. Analysis. It's a wonderful short story showing that Joe Hill is just not all about the writer, about the horror. He can do more if he wanted to. Joe Hill had the ability to be, gasp, a legitimate writer. So there's a Joe Hillism here, guys. Um, and that is unstable covered bridges. At one point, Homer has to go through a covered bridge. This plays a huge role in Nosferatu. Up next is the black phone. 13-year-old John Finney is kidnapped by a man named Al. Trapped in a basement room, the boy's only hope may lie in the mysterious, disconnected black phone hanging on the basement wall. The phone rings at night with the whispers of the kidnapper's previous and now-dead victims. Analysis. This one's off to a great start. It's super unsettling. By the end of the second page, the author should have a bad feeling about what's going to go down. From the hints that Finney would later have time to reflect on the moment of slapstick that drew him to the fat man to the fact that the balloons which rushed out of the man's car were dead black, Hill starts to build the tension immediately. 
and the fear of the moment tastes like the grape soda in Finn's mouth. The fact that, that Hill can take the concept of childhood abduction and give it a taste shows the reason why we're talking about his short stories right now. The abduction is vivid, rich with imagery that startles the, the eyes, the black balloons, taste the grape soda, touch when he's blasted with the wasp killer. Hill writes, Finney's eyes were open, but all he could see were pulsations of orange and oily brown that flared, dripped, ran into one another, and faded. He effectively places us in Finney's position, trying to put the pieces together to figure out where he is and how he can get out, trying to figure out why Al, his abductor, can't bring him food. Why not? Does it mean that someone else is in there? And there's the phone, the black phone itself. First of all, what a great image. And when it rings, us knowing that the cord is frayed, knowing that it can't physically ring, it's haunting. We soon learn that the voice on the other end is a dead child preparing Finney for the moment when Al comes for him. And the end is pure triumph. Finney is able to beat the abductor with a sand-filled with a sand -filled receiver and chokes him with the cord. And as he dies, Albert begins hearing the sound of the phone ringing, which leads to yet another mic drop of a Joe Hill ending. Across the room, the black phone rang. The fat man choked. He stopped scratching at Finney's face and set his fingers under the wire around his throat. He could only use his left hand because his fingers of his right were shattered, bent in unlikely directions. The phone rang again. The fat man's gaze flicked towards it, then back to Finney's face. Albert's pupils were very wide, so wide the golden rings of his irises had shrunk to almost nothing. His pupils were a black of, pair of black balloons obscuring twin suns. The phone rang and rang. Finney pulled the wire. On Albert's dark, bruise-colored face was a horrified question. It's for you, Finney told him. So we have a Joe Hillism here, and that is the abduction of children. The abduction of Finney is a prototype what will become the, the, the plot, really, of Nosferatu. Which you can find my review of here, the Stephen King cast. Next up, um, in the rundown, so the Wikipedia summary is, a video store clerk comes upon a grisly scene in a weedy dirt lane. Now, first of all, we need to talk about how dated this story is. In 2016, there's no such thing as a video store, so reading this feels like a historical document. You know, this one's a dark little story, and it's one of the only ones in this collection I don't really like, and I don't really have much to say about it. But up next, we have the cape. Seven-year-old Eric learns that he can fly while wearing his blue cape. After suffering a terrible injury, he thinks the cape is lost, only to find the cape again years later. Now this one, guys, I love this one. I absolutely love the cape. I remember reading it the first time, realizing that I had been fooled into thinking that Eric was a good guy, that the story was an ode to childhood wonder and imagination. When the end comes, and Hill gives us a Superman Lois Lane moment only to twist by having Eric drop her, it's a stroke of genius, and completely in line with what occurs earlier, especially with the flashback when Eric is holding the knife in the kitchen. What appears to be, at first, a misunderstanding, we realize that his loved ones have a right to be concerned about him. He is a dangerous man. The story presents the idea that living in childhood poisons us. As Eric says, comic books become a drug. The overconsumption of this medium, using it as a crutch to avoid adulthood and adulthood responsibilities, creates an entitled, an entitled angry fanboy. The truth is hidden, but it's there. The joy and wish fulfillment um, he finds in Lord of the Flies, for instance. 
And because the story is told through first-person perspective, it turns Eric into an unreliable narrator. So his recounting of events between he and Angie shows that he does not grasp the realities of adult life. He lives in the I wish world of childhood without a sense of consequence. Adult Eric eventually discovers that his childhood cape is no longer missing, and we get incredible descriptions of him floating above the earth. Beginning on page... Oh, 187. The moon was only a little bigger than a quarter full, but bright enough to etch intensely dark, sharp-edged shadows on the ground and to make the frosty yards below shine as if the grass were blades of chrome. I glided forward. I did some loops around the leafless crown of a red maple. The dead elm was long gone, had split in two in a windstorm almost eight years before. The top half had come down against the house, a long branch shattering one of my bedroom windows, as if reaching in for me, still trying to kill me. It was cold, and the chill intensified as I climbed. I didn't care. I wanted to get above everything. The town was built on the slopes of a valley, a crude black bowl, a glitter with lights. I heard a mournful honking in my left ear, and my heart gave a lunge. I looked through the inky dark and saw a mallard with a liquid black head and a throat of startling emerald beating its wings and staring cautiously back at me. I did not remain by my, he did not remain by my side for long, but dove, swooped to the south, and was gone. And then comes the big reveal, after he whisks Angie away into the night, on page 193. She buried her face against my chest again. Her nose grazed my scar, a silver slash like the silver slash of the moon. I was still climbing towards the moon. It didn't seem so far away. She fingered the old scar. It's unbelievable, she whispered. Think how lucky you were. A few inches lower and that branch might have gone right through your heart. Who said it didn't, I said, and leaned forward and let her go. She held onto my neck, kicking, and I had to peel her fingers off one at a time before she fell. Whenever my brother and I played superheroes, he always made me be the bad guy. Someone had to be. Oh! So good, so good. And I should note that that um, Joe Hill wrote both a sequel and a prequel to the Cape, giving its origins um, in Vietnam, and then what happens after the events of the Cape when Eric travels to Boston um, to find his brother and, and pay him back. So the entire story of Eric does get told with the middle section uh, taking place here in this collection and then finishing it up later in comic book form. Um, up next we have Last Breath. Uh, the story concerns Dr. Allinger, an old man who runs a museum of silence which contains the last breaths of various people, some being famous figures such as Edgar Allan Poe. Analysis. A few of these stories, this one, Best New Horror, My Father's Mask, they're like fever dreams. This is one of the short stories in the collection and it gets the point um, with very creeping efficiency, the reveal of the collection of final breaths, the rumination of different types of silences all leading to the mother's death, which will then be collected by the doctor and what looks to be his new apprentice, the mother's son. Up next, we have Deadwood, which is two pages exploring a concept of haunted trees tied into one person's loss. It's more like a poem than a short story, but it's awesome. I love it. Up next, we have The Widow's Breakfast. It's a very short story of the vagabond life during the Great Depression, and I can't tell if it's simply a story of two individuals meeting each other at times of loss, 
or if it's a horror story where the widow is a murderous black widow dressing the hobo in the clothes of a dead man in a ritualistic game she plays with her children. Either way, it's very well written. Next up, guys, Bobby Conroy comes back from the dead. I was so confused when I read the opening lines. Then it sinks in that Bobby Conroy is on the set of Dawn of the Dead, and you can't help but smile. Also, if you want more Tom Savini in your fiction, then be sure to check out the Pine Deep trilogy by Jonathan Madbury. Guys, Tom Savini in a short story, it's fun stuff. This is an absolute beautiful story that needs to be experienced. Hill has managed to create a pair of leads with so much chemistry, you're surprised that the pages you're reading don't ignite from the sparks that are flying. It's an honest story, hilariously set within Dawn of the Dead, which certainly puts it in a category you've probably never seen. Now, yeah, I know there have been zombie romance stories before, but this is different. Despite the zombiness of it all, or maybe because of it, this is the sweetest of Hill stories. You can't help but feel for Bobby. You completely get his situation, both of their situations. You want them to be together, but also you know that they can't. The fact that they're for the time being existing in a state of relationship undeath is why the zombie setting is perfect. If pop art is the best in the collection, I'd say that Bobby Conroy comes back from the dead is the warmest. And then we have the weirdest, my father's mask. Um, 13 year old Jack, his parents take him on an unexpected trip to their cabin on Big Cat Lake. Along the way, they play a game made up by Jack's mother in which they are being chased by the playing card people. At the cabin, Jack finds various masks, which he is told must be worn to disguise himself from the playing card people. Jack grows weary of the game, but soon he finds that it might not be a game at all. Analysis. Now, this is the closest thing that I've ever read that feels like watching a Lynch film. There's so much menace coming off each page, from the casual insanity of the parents with their conversation of the playing card people to the discovery of the masks everywhere on page 246. The whole cottage had been artfully decorated in masks. They dangled from the doorknobs and the backs of the chairs. A great crimson mask glared furiously down from the mantle above the hearth. A surreal demon made out of lacquered paper mache with a hooked beak and feathers around the eyes. Just the thing to wear if you had been cast as the Red Death in an Edgar Allan Poe revival. The most unsettling of them hung from a lock on one of the windows. It was made of some distorted but clear plastic and looked like a man's face molded out of an impossibly thin piece of ice. It was hard to see, dangling from the glass, and I twitched nervously when I spotted it from the corner of my eye. For an instant, I thought there was a man, spectral and barely there, hovering on the porch, gaping in at me. Um, you know, or, or when he looks out of his cottage uh, that night... Um, a bicycle leaned against a tree, an antique with a giant front wheel and a rear wheel almost comically too small. The front wheel turned continuously, ping, ping, ping. A boy came across the grass toward, a chubby boy with fair hair and a white nightgown, and at the sight of him I felt an instinctive rush of dread. He took the handlebars of the bike and cocked his head as if at a sound. I am mewed, shrank back from the glass. He turned and stared at me with silver eyes and silver teeth, dimples in his fat cupid cheeks, and I sprang awake in my mothball-smelling bed, making unhappy sounds of fear in my throat and all of it is just so darkly sexual inappropriate operating illogically there is danger everywhere and it's impossible to make sense of but of all the stories in the collection it's one of the ones that sticks with you the most voluntary committal so this one's great i mean what child 
doesn't like to build forts. And this story takes the premise and just runs with it, turning these forts into an extra-dimensional threat. It also takes the child's fear of basements and turns it into a threat as well. Nolan, the narrator, teases what happens to his brother and eventually introduces us to a childhood classmate named Cameron Hodges, which I would bet is a shout-out to X-Factor villain Cameron Hodge and the antagonist of the 90s crossover, The Extinction Agenda. To make a long story short, Nolan's troubled classmate Eddie causes the injury of a motorist and the guilt of Nolan's involvement causes his brother to create his most ambitious fort yet. Um, and the forts themselves are these elaborate you know, puzzles and labyrinths. I mean, it amazingly described and there's such a, a creepiness to them and an unsettling nature to it that the fact that it's kind of tied into like a Lovecraftian landscape on the other end, it's hinted at. Um, it's just, it's, it's just that, that like, ooh, what's going on sort of feel. It's wonderful. And the quote that comes on page 307 perfectly summarizes the story itself. Um, as well as the joy we all feel when we see a present in its box um, without actually opening up the, the box to find the present itself. And he writes, Morris stared at me without comprehension and pursed his lips. No, Daddy, as if it should have been obvious. Then he turned back, lifted up another box, stared into it thoughtfully. Dad always brought home boxes like this for me from work. He knew how exciting it is to hold a box and not be sure what's in it what it might contain. A whole world might be closed in there. Who could tell from the outside? Featureless outside. You know, I mean, and that actually is the uh, the thrust of J.J. Abrams' storytelling. Um, you know, he believes in the power of the mystery box and just the mystery is that lie within a box. So, Easter eggs. Leng. Originally uh, originated by Lovecraft and used a few times in King's works, Needful Things, Eyes of the Dragon, um, as well within Hill's uh, body as well, um, as seen in Lock and Key. Lang is a landscape um, to another world. And the final story of the book, which I, can, um, I can't pronounce, I can never pronounce it, it's a fun bookend to the collection, which began with Best New Horror, about the... Um, a writer who, when he dies, because writing is so much a part of his life that his ghost continues writing on the typewriter downstairs. And I just, it, because it's it's not just about a writer <coughs> writing, it's also about, it's told through the perspective of the, the child of the writer. So I just can't help but wonder if there's some commentary in there on, on his father and just watching his father write for his entire life. And just, like, you know, when he dies, like, he'll still, he'll still be doing it. So guys, this book, it's great. It's a great collection. And I think that he does, um, you know, for with, with 20th Century Ghost, I, I think that he does for cinema in language what Tarantino does for cinema in the art form itself. You know, with 20th Century Ghost and Bobby Conroy comes back from the dead, he immortalizes the love and importance of audiovisual storytelling. And to be quite frank, Tarantino, who's never tackled the horror genre outside of From Dusk Till Dawn, he should adapt this collection. I think about it. What if the main narrative was the story from 20th Century Ghost? Bobby Conroy could be woven into that story as one of the people who experienced watching a movie with Imogene. 
His redemption and the saving of the theater could be wrapped up together, and a handful of the stories here could be adapted as short movies that play upon the Rosebud screen. I think that would be a wonderful anthology that I would love to see Tarantino tackle. But um, be perfectly honest, I mean, none of these really should be adapted. They should just be experienced as they are. Um, magical little gems that we get in, in, a, in a fantastic collection. And it's still, to me, the, the, the best... Um, published work that 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 joe hill has has put out which isn't to say anything against what else he's done i mean everything else he's done is great i just happen to love 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 20th century ghosts so guys that's all that i have for this week um but if you haven't done so already you know write into stephen kingcast at yahoo.com share me your thoughts on on 20th century ghosts on pop art on bobby conroy comes back from the dead on on uh, the black phone on 20th century ghost on best new horror um there's so much to talk about so feel free to, to write in and, and share your thoughts and uh i'll see you here so how, how do i always end this i can never remember um yeah may you have long days and pleasant nights and i'll see you here next week where m-o-o-n spells stephen king cast happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow